Hey, welcome to the podcast of C3 Los Angeles. I'm Jake Sweetman, and together with my wife, Nicole, we lead this church. We're glad you're here, and we pray that wherever you're tuning in from, that you are encouraged and strengthened by this word. Here's today's message. I want to uh, speak this morning on what I call the thin silence of God, and you'll get the meaning of that as we go along. Now, let me preface this by saying that from 1994 to 1996, uh, Elaine and I lived through an extraordinary visitation of the Holy Spirit. We prayed for hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of people who are coming to a church at the end of the runway at Toronto Airport from all over the world. We drove hundreds of miles up and down the highway, making the two-hour commute, especially during conferences, uh, often coming home in the early hours of the morning. Our own church was radically affected. Uh, Instead of hacking away at trying to get people to attend church, we couldn't get them to leave. And when they did leave, half the time they had to be carried out. Uh, (laughs) But a couple years after that, I found myself in utter despair after people we had poured our lives into, one by one, left our church to, to just go nowhere, to drop off the edge. And one day, in the midst of that, I found myself walking down our driveway, taking the trash out. The Canadian word for that is garbage. The English word is rubbish. So I just got to remember what country. You'd hardly think it was the same language. What do they call it in Australia? No, rubbish. There you go. It's the empire. I'm just going to be Canadian for a minute. I was taking the garbage out. And uh, going down the driveway, have you ever been in a situation where it's like your life turns into slow motion and something happens that you never forget. And I was in a moment of hopelessness, but I heard in that moment God speak to me. And it was a really uh, simple message. Just keep putting one foot ahead of the other. And somehow I made it to the end of the driveway. And things just gradually, very gradually started to get better. And God spoke to me in that low whisper. It wasn't a trumpet voice, but that's all I needed at that moment. And this low whisper is what this message is all about. Now, by the word of the Lord through Elijah, there had been no rain in the land for three years. He was actually controlling the economy of the nation. Because in an agricultural economy, if you can control the weather, you've controlled everything. And it was the judgment of God on Ahab and Jezebel. And so in due course, this is uh, in chapter 18 of 1 Kings. I can't read. I'm going to read a couple verses in a minute. But in due course, Elijah, who had been in hiding was commanded by God to show himself to Ahab. And there was a big confrontational meeting. And in that meeting, they set up this event on top of Mount Carmel between, uh, it was the, the, the battle between Elijah and the prophets of Baal and Asherah. And as you know, if you know your Bible at all, the story unfolds as one of the most vivid accounts we have in Scripture of the confrontation of good and evil. And God miraculously moves to destroy the power of the enemy and hundreds of his agents. And uh, following that, Elijah pronounces the end of the drought, the coming of the rain. Ahab has to rush back in his chariot to the city 
to avoid being caught in the deluge. And it looked in that moment like the battle was over, but it wasn't. Jezebel operated in an extraordinary measure of demonic power. Now, let me read just these few verses from 1 Kings chapter 9 and the first eight verses. Ahab told Jezebel of all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I don't make your life as one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. And he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat down under a broom tree, which I have no idea what that is, but anyway, and he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough, O Lord, take my life, I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down in a pout, that's not in the Bible, I just added it in, (laughs) and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate, and he drank, and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Rise and eat, the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. So Jezebel, she wasn't terrified by Elijah's victory on Mount Carmel, but she was infuriated, and she ordered Elijah's execution. Now, at this point in the story, you would expect that as had been that pattern for his entire life, the word of the Lord would come to Elijah. I mean, after all, who ever heard the word of the Lord as consistently as Elijah did? But it didn't. And in verse 3 of 1 Kings 19, it says that Elijah was consumed by fear and ran for his life. Now, if faith is the key to triumph over fear, then fear is the greatest obstacle to our being able to hear from God. If it could stop Elijah's ears from hearing, it can stop yours and mine. So Elijah flees to Beersheba. It's, Beersheba was about 120 miles from Mount Carmel. It was as far away as you could possibly get from Jezebel without going outside the country. And there, in a depressed state, I always find encouragement that these great characters of Scripture like Elijah and Paul went through periods of depression. And instead of being super spiritual and saying, well, I've never been depressed, let's just admit it. You know, sometimes you get depressed. <laughs> And in a depressed state, Elijah prayed that God would take his life. Things were pretty dire. And what he said was, it's enough, Lord. It's enough. Now, what lies behind that? It's the idea, I've sacrificed enough for you. I reached my limit. I've had it. Thank God Jesus didn't take that attitude as he faced Calvary. There's never a reason to end or to limit your serving of God. Never. Now, in my book from 40 years of counseling and consulting with psychologist friends, the root of 90% of depression is anger. 
usually, ultimately, anger against God. If I'm counseling someone who's depressed, I'll ask the question, what are you angry at? Something always comes out. Elijah painted himself as a sacrificial servant whom God had failed. That's the subtext of his complaint. He was angry at God. Why? Because God had refused to fulfill his expectations. What were his expectations? That Mount Carmel was the end of it and final victory. But it wasn't. And now Elijah had had enough. But God is so gracious, he sends an angel to feed him, even though Elijah has got this spirit of a little boy of a pout on him. Most of you married women will say there's nothing worse than a husband with a pout. (laughs) Now, that's never happened to me. It's just I'm speaking theoretically of what I've observed in everybody else. So... Uh, and so God sends an angel. Now, he may not have, we have friends that God has sent angels to, but, you know, I've never seen one myself, uh, but uh, in, in actual form. But the fact is, how many times has God sent somebody to feed, an angel just means, the word just means messenger. How many times has God sent a messenger to you to feed you and to cheer you up when you are ready to give up? You know, don't stay, don't stray outside the local church because that's the place where you're going to get help. The devil wants to take you outside the boundaries of the church where you will be stranded and at his mercy. You know, no local church is perfect. If you ever find the perfect church, you'll ruin it the minute you join it. <laughs> that was a. Well. <laughs> That was not a seeker-sensitive comment, but this is not a seeker-sensitive church, thank God. (laughs) So God sends an angel to feed him when he's ready to give up. God meets us, a theologian, Tom Wright, makes this statement, God meets us usually at the screaming point. And that's about where he met Elijah. So Elijah has lost control of the situation. He's got no plan left, but God does not have a problem with that. Just when you think it's all over, God has a way of reminding you that he's still in charge. And so God always has a plan. Whether you see it or not, it's irrelevant. So the angel commands him to go to Mount Horeb. Now, interestingly, this turns out to be another name for Mount Sinai. And Horeb, or Sinai, was 250 further miles from Beersheba. But here's something equally significant. The journey, it says, took 40 days. Now, as soon as we link up Sinai with 40 days, it links Elijah with the 40 days and 40 nights that Moses spent on the very same mountain back in Exodus 24, and the 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness, where Elijah was, uh, 500 years earlier. 40 is the number of failure, but it's also the number of God's presence in the wilderness. And amidst Elijah's failure, God is about to show up. His presence is going to come in the place of apparent failure. And you know what? That's usually where God shows up, in the moment of your failure. Don't be afraid of failure. Failure is nothing more than the gateway to success, as long as you handle it correctly. 
the wilderness in the original Exodus and in the second Exodus, which is portrayed in the book of Revelation, I can't get into that or else we'd be here for hours. But anyway, um, Exodus, I'm sorry, Revelation is a replay of the book of Exodus. Let me just say that much and then that whets your appetite. But the Exodus is the place of God's protection between the place of spiritual bondage and the place of ultimate deliverance. So the story here is about to show us that it's the wilderness and not Mount Carmel that turns out to be the place of God's presence for Elijah, even as it was for Moses. And never forget the 40 days Jesus spent in the wilderness. The three tests. The test that Israel failed. Man shall not live by bread alone, Jesus said, when he was asked, or the devil told him, I'll turn these stones into bread. He said, man shall not live by bread alone. Israel had longed after food and complained at God in that area. Jesus said, no. Israel failed the test, Jesus passed it. You shall not test the Lord your God. Uh, that was the second. Um, and uh, Jesus said to the devil, you shall not test the Lord your God. But Israel did test the Lord your, their God at Meribah and Massah, and they failed the test. Jesus passed the test. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only, Jesus said to Satan. But Israel had gone back into idolatry. The three tests that Israel had failed in the wilderness, Jesus passed in his how many days? Forty days in where? The wilderness. Jesus turned the number of failure into the number of success. And so, there in a cave on Mount Sinai, the word of the Lord is restored to Elijah. But it comes as a question. Verse 9, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, let me let you in on a secret. God knew perfectly well what Elijah was doing. But, you see, God has a way of asking his questions because he wants to draw out what's in your heart. And he wanted, and he wants us to articulate what he knows is already there, but we need to be honest about it. I mean, if you're angry at God, which Elijah was, uh, don't transfer your anger onto your husband or wife or your friend or your church or somebody, pastor or somebody else. God knows that you're angry with him. Just tell him. God is not going to have to pop an extra Valium or antidepressant. <laughs> Fall off, his, fall off his throne in despair because it's Jake complaining again. <laughs> David had no problem telling God, you know, the psalmist, how long, O God? Express your anger. My wife goes out in the car and yells at God and some rolls the windows up where no one can hear. And... Uh, God knows it's there anyway. You've got to express it for God and give it to God. Say, God, I'm angry at you. I, I've done it. God, I'm angry at you. I know it's not your fault, but I'm angry and I need your help. So just be honest with God. If you repress anger, you will get depressed. I can't go through the clinical thing, but 
that's how it works. So Elijah, so God is trying to draw this out of Elijah's heart so that he can bring healing to him. So Elijah's in the wrong place, not supposed to be there, but in the merciful providence of God, this is the place that God's going to meet him. Which tells me, even if I miss God, even if I fail, God will still find a place to meet me because he is more committed to the success of his plan for my life than I am. He is more invested in your life than you are. Don't ever think that he's left you, failed you, or deserted you because he's got more at stake. He's got more at stake in your life than you have. He is invested in your success. Well, now, if he'd been honest in that moment, Elijah would have confessed the truth. Lord, I'm here because I've lost sight of you. Uh, I've fallen into fear. I'm angry. Uh, and I failed to stand up to Jezebel in the confidence that the God who met me on Mount Carmel could also meet me in the presence of Jezebel. Instead of acknowledging his failures, he answers with this self-justifying complaint. Look at all I've done for you, God. And now you've left me alone and my enemies are trying to kill me. See, through a combination of anger and self-pity, Elijah had lost track of the spiritual reality that had previously controlled his whole life. I mean, think about it. He, he'd not only forgotten what God had done just a few days before on Mount Carmel. I mean, that was extraordinary. I mean, if it was, it was even if nobody had answered by fire, Elijah would have been dead meat because there was 450 of them and only one of him. But the guts that he'd shown... But he'd forgotten that. He'd forgotten what God had done when he was fed by the raven. My friend John Babu, this is also extra to my time limit this morning because your pastor has insisted I tell this story. I had a friend, John Babu, who is now with the Lord. He was an extraordinary, I wish I had time to tell the story. He was an extraordinary apostolic man in the state of Andhra Pradesh in India, planted hundreds of churches, saw six people raised from the dead in his spare time, and then had all sorts of other things happen. But John Babu had eight children. Now, I sympathize with the grocery bill, especially my three, my three sons. They kind of opened the refrigerator door and it emptied. Uh, where is the food? Well, I just did the shopping, their mom says, about a half an hour ago. Well, there's nothing left, you know. So, uh, John Babu was uh, destitute. Uh, he had been church planning. He had a contract out for him by the militant Hindus. And uh, he sat in the courtyard of his house, his wife and eight children to feed and he cried out to God, and you know what happened. Of course you do. A raven came down, and it landed right in front of him. And in its beak was a gold, solid gold coin deposited right in front of him, and it flew off. So we serve the same God. Hmm? And from that day... He never looked back, just like Sarah when she emptied her bank account. 
and was given the $100 bill. I told that story in a church in Michigan, uh, and there was a young man in the congregation who for the first time had begun to tithe. He just recently was converted. He was scared stiff, He the concept of giving, and he put what for him was a large amount of money into the offering in that church in Michigan that morning. Nobody knew. But as he walked out the door, and I told the story after he'd given the money, not before, after uh, he'd given the money, I told the story of Sarah, how she'd emptied her bank account and how a lady had given her the $100 bill. And as that young man was walking out the door of the church building that morning, he heard a voice of one of the older men calling to him. And the older man said, I just feel that God wants uh, me to give this to you. And he handed him a $100 bill. Amazing. You can't outgive the Lord. So the only people that complain about tithing is the people that, about their finances and tithing are the people that don't actually tithe. You'll get that at some point anyway. <laughs> so Elijah, though, had forgotten that. Was that story all right? Okay, okay. <laughs> Elijah had forgotten. Remember when he raised the widow's child from the dead? He'd forgotten that too. There's a lot of things he'd forgotten. He was blaming God for a difficult situation that he could not explain. Instead of assuming that God in his utter faithfulness and sovereignty still had a plan. Elijah had allowed Jezebel to turn an incredible victory into total defeat. Why? He had believed a lie. That's the problem that you have If you believe a lie, you're finished. My spiritual father picked me up one day at Toronto Airport, and I was in a grouch. And uh, he said, how are you doing? And I said, I'm discouraged. And he just turned to me and said, well, what lie have you believed? Uh, Well, thank you very much for that vote of sympathy. (laughs) See, it's only when we believe a lie, and the enemy is, that's his constant mandate, to lie to you. You need to hear the voice of God because you do hear the enemy all the time. We need to hear the voice of God unmasking and destroying the continuous lies. You know, you're a failure. God has forsaken you. Your life is over. You mount to nothing. Nobody loves you. You're rejected. You're this, you're that, you're the next thing. That's the mandate of Satan. When you hear things like that, which are contrary to what the word of God says about you, you know that is a lie. Don't listen. Don't be stupid. <laughs> okay. He believed a lie. Now, the lie came in when he heard Jezebel's threats. That's when it came in. What was the lie? The lie at its foundation was that God had failed him. It hadn't worked. The plan hadn't worked. So the question is, What false belief made him susceptible to believing that something his entire walk with God should have taught him was not true? Uh, It had something to do with the fact that he was expecting victory to come through the manifestation of power on top of the mountain. And when that didn't happen, he was lost. Now, here's here's the thing. Elijah's identity worked in strength, but it didn't work in weakness. 
He hadn't discovered what another man found out centuries later. There's only one place, ultimately, that God's power is manifest, and that's in our weakness, 2 Corinthians 12 and 9. That's where God shows up. Elijah was lost in self-centered navel-gazing. When all you can see is your own disappointment, you all place your suffering at the center of your little universe, and you all forget everything about who God is and what he's done for you. So don't do it. So God takes Elijah out of the cave, and he stands in a place in the mountain, stands him in a place in the mountain in the presence of the Lord. Uh, verse 11 states, now I haven't got, you just go back, do me a favor, sometime this week, read the whole story in 1 Kings 18, 19. So he stands him in this place in the mountain. Now, Exodus 33 tells us that God met Moses. Remember the comparison with Moses? Exodus 33 tells us that God met Moses on Mount Sinai in the cleft of the rock, and now he meets Elijah. I can't prove it, but I believe it was in the very same place. The coincidences are far too many. Just like Moses, God takes him to the mountain, and makes him stand in a place where his presence passes by. And just like Moses, there were three manifestations of the power of God in that place on that same mountain. Earthquake, wind, and fire. Just like the earthquake, the lightning, and the fire when Moses went up the mountain in Exodus 19. God is in the business of making a point with Moses and with Elijah. Because after the power manifestations in both situations, 500 years apart, the same place, something very different happened, and Elijah knew it. I am sure the same cloud, the same glory passed by as happened with Moses, and just like Moses, Elijah, the text says, covers his face because no one can see God and live, and God came in a low whisper. Now, Hebrew is a very graphic... I did actually study Hebrew. I'm not just making this up. Hebrew is a very graphic language with a small vocabulary. It's very tactile language. And the, the literal meaning of this phrase, which is duma madaka in Hebrew, is a thin silence. A thin silence. God shows up in the thin silence. And in that moment, God asks Elijah the same question. What are you doing here? Elijah still hasn't learned because he gives God the same answer back. If God asks you a question and you answer it, then God comes back and says the same thing to you over again. Don't give him the same wrong answer you did before. <laughs> Anger against God or disappointment that he's apparently failed you will destroy your capacity to hear the voice of God and find the answer to your situation. If it happened with Elijah and he heard God more than the average person, let's just put it that way, probably more than any of us did, if it can happen to him, it can certainly happen to you and me. Okay. Now notice that God does not dignify his complaints with an answer. Neither is God forced to de delay putting his plan into operation by Elijah's disobedience, because God is sovereign, which is why I'm reformed in my th theology. That's another question again. Okay, God, it's God. Let me tell you something. God, you have free will, but God has more free will than you do. 
The only reason you have any is because he's given it to you. Or put it another way, God has a problem. He thinks he's God. Uh, I know it's deep, and my wife's going to kill me for saying that again, but I just, I just can't. Stop it. Must be the anointing. Okay. <laughs> God will move ahead with his plan whether we move with him or not. If you're not moving forward in the will of God, you're moving backward, and there's no sitting on the fence. So God responds to Elijah's self-centered spiritual inertia and navel-gazing. God responds to that with a list of commands. He says, Elijah, you're to go to Damascus and anoint a man called Hazael, king over Syria. Then you're to go to another place and find a man called Jehu and anoint him king over Israel. And finally, you're to find a third man, Elisha, and to anoint him prophet in your place. And this is the ultimate point of the thin silence of God. Victory is going to come, but it will come in an unanticipated way. It will not come through displays of supernatural power. And it's not going to come through Elijah, the man of that power. Elijah has missed his opportunity, but God is moving on. The authority he's held is to be handed over to others. Now, Hazael and Jehu, the first two men that Elijah anoints, eventually destroy Ahab and Jezebel. Elisha, the third man he anoints, is going to carry on the prophetic ministry in a new format, incorporating a school of the prophets and 7,000 others who had not bowed the knee to Baal. But see the faithfulness of God. Elijah had complained that the people have forsaken the covenant. But under Jehu, the covenant is going to be renewed. Elijah had complained to God, they've killed the prophets. But by the hand of Hazael and Jehu, those who killed the prophets would themselves be killed. Elijah had complained, I'm left alone. But under Elisha, a mighty school of the prophets would arise to replace him. God answered all of Elijah's complaints. It's interesting that the New Testament teaches us that Elijah is a forerunner. He's a type, a forerunner of John the Baptist. Jesus said it. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. But Elisha, his name means God saves in Hebrew. He is a type or forerunner of the man whose name means Yahweh saves, Yeshua, Jesus. And that is why it's Elisha who multiplies the loaves to feed the people. He's a forerunner of the bread of life. It's Elisha is the man who shows, Elijah smoked his enemies, but Elisha is the one who shows mercy to his enemies. He spared the blinded soldiers who were led into the city. He goes out and heals Naaman, the enemy general. Elijah was a one-man band who had to be reminded there were others, but Elisha released the anointing through the prophetic school, which is itself a type of the body of Christ, because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, Revelation 19 and 10. That means we are the prophetic school, all of us. True victory ultimately comes folks, in the place of human weakness. It wasn't at Mount Carmel when Elijah was at his strongest. It was at Mount Sinai when he was at his weakest that the purposes of God were released on the earth. 
Mount Carmel was amazing, but it was only the preliminary round. See, Jesus understood this, even though his disciples didn't. Jesus performed miracles. John's gospel describes them as signs that point to who he is. The miracles, just like Mount Carmel, are amazing. But if you don't find Jesus in the miracles, they don't amount to nothing. Most of the people who saw Jesus' miracles, they walked away. They never got the point. They weren't at the cross. And Jesus knew victory wasn't going to come by the power of miracles. He could have asked his father to send a legion or two of angels in Gethsemane. But he knew the purpose of God was going to be released through a man hanging naked on humiliation and defeat on a Roman cross. But hanging on that cross, Jesus Christ was controlling the course of all human history, even though it didn't look like it. Well, Elijah is a hero to me, and I think he should be to all of us. He stood for righteousness. His life was characterized by extraordinary displays of faith and faithfulness. At my age, I'm getting to the point where I'll meet Elijah sooner rather than later, so I want to stay in his good side. (laughs) He is a hero. God honored him, after all, by taking him in a literal cloud of glory. But we do need to learn a lesson from where he failed. God can come in ways that we expect and pray for, in miracles, in healings, in provision, in promotion, in things going right, in churches growing. And we should pray for all those. But those things are not the foundation of our faith. The foundation of our faith is not the miraculous, it's the cross. And so when the miracles don't happen, what do we do then? We don't lose heart. We haven't believed the lie that without a constant manifestation of the supernatural, we've lost the presence of God. No, we learn to listen for the whisper. We learn to seek the thin silence. And out of that, out of that, out of that might just come the release of the purpose of God in your life. Jesus calls us to walk in the way of the cross. But the good news is that the cross was followed by the resurrection. You know, it's a constant theme of the Bible. I first heard this as a very young Christian, an undisclosed number of years ago. Uh, It's a constant theme of the Bible that God first gives a dream. Then he destroys it. Then he restores it. So that the glory will go to him. Look, he did it with Abraham, didn't he? He did it with Jacob. He did it with Moses. He did it with David. He did it with Elijah. He did it with Paul. What what do we do? What do you do? What do I do when our dream seems to die? In the words of my spiritual father, Each of us needs to wrap our dreams and expectations in the burial cloth of Christ and place them in the tomb. God brings our visions to a place of death before he resurrects them so that he alone gets the glory. So, my dear friends, uh, when things don't turn out as you expected, when you run of hope, run out of hope while you're going down your driveway taking your 
trash, garbage, or rubbish out. Remember the lesson of Elijah. You can feel sorry for yourself and give up. Or you can flee to the place of God's presence and find him there in the thin silence. And then you can know that your resurrection is on the way. God bless you. You've been listening to the C3 Los Angeles podcast. If you found today's message helpful, we encourage you to share it with a friend and consider rating it. If you'd like more information about our church or details on how to get connected to a neighborhood group, head to c3losangeles.com. We love you. Thanks for tuning in with us.